Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 65 of... Round the Archives. Our first full issue of this year... It is. But our third actual release. Yes. As we've done two in-conversation episodes Mm -hmm. on audio and on video. Yes. Uh, One with Warren Mm -hmm. talking about Doctor Who VHSs and Mm -hmm. one with Nick talking about tapes and taping in general. Mm -hmm. So be sure to find those out. We've, We've also done Vision on Sound. Yes. And uh, the Shy Life podcast we as well. We have. And I've been twitching like a good un, as they say. Okay. I've been broadcasting a lot on Twitch, uh, right. playing games with Warren mm-hmm. and Paul. Yes. Um, so if anyone does have a Twitch account, please follow me there. Mm-hmm. That would be good. I need just a few more followers and they'll stop paying me money. Oh, my goodness. So follow us on Twitch TV forward slash Troby, T-R-O-W-B-Y. But now, on to the first article, and it's Martin Holmes looking at... NYPD Blue. Time passes oh so very swiftly, and from time to time I am reminded that it's 40 years since this, or 50 years since that, and whilst it still often comes as no surprise that the years are passing, the fact that EastEnders is nearly 40 years old simply cannot and will not compute. After all, when that particular TV show started, Coronation Street was already on the brink of reaching its quarter century, and already seemed ancient, whilst the BBC's brand new soap opera arrival seemed edgy and fresh and brand new, and perhaps a ridiculously trivial dramatic diversion for the channel to be making, as it started its descent into popularist hell. But despite some dismal ratings in its earliest years, the show endures. Meanwhile, one thing that has definitely surprised me this year is the strange and almost completely ridiculous fact that the Stephen Botchko and David Milch-inspired multiple award-winning series NYPD Blue is going to be 30 years old in September 2023. How the heck did that happen? This brand new, slick, cutting-edge and up-to-the-minute follow-up to the incredible 1980s successes of series like Hill Street Blues and LA Law still feels as if it should be as fresh as a daisy to me, and surely, surely can't possibly be that old. Can it? 
But then I realised that I do remember determinedly recording those first few seasons when the series first popped up on Channel 4 in late 1993, after I seem to recall a pretty vigorous advertising campaign, and becoming obsessed with the show, even if on occasions it meant staggering over to the video recorder early on a Sunday morning whilst nursing one of those hangovers that seemed to follow me around at the weekend during my 30s. So what exactly was it that made this particular show so appealing? Was it simply the fact that the frankly marvellously blue-collar everyman actor Dennis France, who had so brilliantly injected new life into the past couple of seasons of Hill Street Blues playing Detective Norman Bunce, was involved? France plays Detective Andy Sipowitz, whose work shirts are short of sleeve, but still warm with a tie in the manner so distinctive it had a look named after it, and who has one of those names that you'd have to be told how to pronounce it if you saw it written down, like that other detective called Andy, D.L. from D.L. and Pasco. By the way, once you've been told how to say it, it's probably best to remember it, as Sipowitz is a volatile, unforgiving and intolerant soul, and that's despite getting six bullets shot into him in the very first episode. Was it the promise of occasional flashes of relatively mild nudity on display, which was the show's unique selling point as it tried to break the shackles of what was deemed appropriate for network-based adult programming in an age when HBO was already showing that anything could go in the pay-per-view television sector? This sort of risque business being just the sort of thing designed to inflame the network sponsors, advertisers and affiliates and have many of them refuse to even broadcast the show in some of the more morally upstanding parts of the country. Was it the dazzling, dizzying camera work that whizzed round in all directions, from one focal point to another as it attempted to show an authentic street-life aesthetic of tiny but significant moments which perhaps simulated how we, as humans, go about taking in our environment? Such rapid, often out of focus and sometimes excessive use of moving cameras in more intimate scenes so troubled the show's earliest critics and many of its viewers, more used to the static images offered by most of the other shows on TV at the time, that there were many complaints and demands to tone it down, and yet the inspiration such techniques offered opened up such frantic, frenetic possibilities that shows like ER would be on screen within a couple of seasons, and the adrenaline-pumping style of that show, bringing the viewer to the very heart of the action, would not have been possible without NYPD Blue paving the way. Often, however, many of those authentic shots of New York street life were not shot on the streets of New York at all, but in the altogether more convenient mean streets of downtown LA. But that's the magic of television for you. There were, of course, scenes shot on location in New York, often for the first few episodes in the new season when the production was gearing up for another year and when they involved a genuine well-known landmark. But the frenetic pace of the production schedule meant that it was often necessary to fake it, and a generic street style, alongside some deft editing, managed, on the whole, to generally be pretty convincing. Perhaps its appeal was quite simply the breathtaking audacity and pace of the storytelling as it rattled along, telling astonishing tales of crime-fighting in a modern urban setting without hanging about. Well, it was possibly a little bit of all of these, and whilst another groundbreaking police series, this time set in Baltimore and called Homicide Life on the Streets, had also launched in 1993, a series which often used very similar techniques in both storytelling and camera work, somehow it never quite managed to reach the same audience, and it was this younger rival that prevailed, perhaps because it got the full-season network support that Homicide Life on the Street struggled to get until the arrival of its third season. First broadcast by the ABC network in the US, that first season of NYPD Blue is both an astonishing feat of storytelling and unique because several of the main cast, around whom the bulk of that season's storylines revolved, would not be returning for the bulk of the second year because of certain production problems that, for a time, at least until its success was proven, made its survival and renewal for that second year very doubtful indeed. That first season tells the story of the troubled life of Detective John Kelly, as played by the flame-haired phenomenon that is the actor David Caruso, who caught the eye of the producers when he was cast as one of the leaders of the Irish-American street gang, the Shamrocks, in the earliest seasons of Hill Street Blues. 
make a note of that racial designation because matters of race and exactly where your people come from are very important to the characters in NYPD Blue. None of them are simply Americans but are identified and identify themselves by their perceived roots and the roots of the various members of their closest kith and kin. Sadly, however, it does sometimes seem as if your racial heritage does tend to have some bearing on whether your character, especially if it is a character who's up to no good, makes it alive and or free to the end credits, which probably says a lot about the times the programme was being made in, but also shows us that, in many ways, little has actually changed. So, of the lead characters in that first series, Detective John Kelly, and given his red hair, possibly also Detective Greg Medavoy, are from Irish-American stock. Detective Andy Sipowitz claims to be Polish-American. Lieutenant Arthur Fancy is Black-American. Officer Janice LaCalci is Italian-American. ADA Laura Michaels-Kelly is White-American. And Detective James Martinez is Hispanic-American. And be prepared, sometimes the words used to describe the members of other groups, or the words characters sometimes use to describe themselves, are not the kindest or most complimentary terms. Such racial distinctions really do seem to matter a lot to the writers of NYPD Blue and race issues would come up time and again. Often, at least in the early seasons, presumably because they were a hot topic in the culture of the times the show was being made, but also because of the abrasive conflict fueled behaviour of the character of John Kelly's detective partner, the very troubled and troubling Andy Sipowitz. Kelly and Sipowitz are a pair of detectives in the 15th squad, both of whom have very complicated personal lives. Sipowitz is an angry alcoholic, a bigot, a misogynist and a homophobe, amongst other things, and all of those negative character traits will be addressed over the course of the following 12 years. Kelly is seen as being the voice of reason, very loyal to and very protective of his partner, and at least in the beginning, the series is centred around the life of his character as his home life collapses around him. That said, one thing you can say about all of the lead characters in NYPD Blue is that they are, on the whole, very loyal towards each other and are prepared to go to sometimes extraordinary lengths to get their colleagues and friends out of a dramatically significant jam. Whether or not they go to the same lengths in pursuit of the truth when it comes to the bad guys, however, is debatable, but of such things are the false jeopardies of long-running TV series and character arcs made. As the show begins, Kelly is in the middle of an on-again, off-again divorce from his wife, the assistant district attorney, Laura Michaels Kelly, who, once the John Kelly character departs, the show would have no further need for. Luckily for Sherry Stringfield, the wards and corridors of the ER of Cook County Hospital in Chicago would be waiting for her within a couple of years. During that first year, you'll also get a rather tragic four-episode story arc featuring a pre-friends David Schwimmer in a storyline which doesn't end well for him, but does at least remind me that the series featured many great actors in supporting roles across its 12 years, and there's a lot of fun to be had in spotting them popping up from time to time. John Kelly is also having an affair with a uniformed cop, Janice LeCalcy, as played by Amy Brenneman, whose father has ties to the mob. In fact, the mob, and how many ties it may have to the New York Police Department, is a very powerful thread that runs throughout that first season. This is, of course, all very complicated, and how their relationship plays out is one of the binding threads of that first year, even if, towards the end of that brutal season, John Kelly has moved on to relationships buttock-flashingly new. Weirdly, at this point in his story, with his complicated personal life spinning out of control at times, you wouldn't put money on John Kelly quitting or being forced out of the NYPD before Sipowitz gets booted out or killed, which only goes to show how unpredictable life, even fictional life, can be. 
because having reached the very bottom of his first barrel in the opening episode and launching a full-on abusive tirade towards another of New York's ADAs, a certain Sylvia Costas, as played by the impossibly glamorous Sharon Lawrence, later in that same episode Andy Sipowitz gets brutally gunned down in an attempted mob hit, which results in a run of several episodes in which he attempts to stop drinking and turn his life around, whilst often playing fast and loose with the kind of rules that ought to find him on very thin ice indeed with his lieutenant. All of his efforts to improve himself, however, ultimately lead towards an unlikely, quite surprising, and ultimately, though this takes a long time, rather sweet relationship with the person who was once on the receiving end of that opening torrent of abuse. Only in telly, eh, people? That, in later seasons they would have a child and Sylvia would come to a very sticky end, is all for the distant future, as are all those terrible moments when Andy falls off the wagon or talks about wanting to beat confessions out of particularly terrible suspects. But what also happens in those later seasons is that the series will offer up some surprisingly tender moments with single dad Andy and his son Theo, as well as finding him forming a very strong friendship with Bill Brockdrop's openly gay character John Irvin, towards whom Andy is initially, and very predictably, utterly hostile. And so through NYPD Blue we get a ringside seat as this angry, bigoted man goes through a 12-year journey towards becoming a better person. Somewhere along the line he also manages to reconcile his dislike of Lieutenant Arthur Fancy, the, quote, black boss he is often openly hostile towards, and who, despite having so many reasons not to, somehow manages to tolerate this troubling detective through nearly eight combative and conflicted seasons, despite being the most centred character in the group, and whose own complicated home life is, on the whole, refreshingly ordinary. Later still in the series, there will also be another unlikely marriage for Sipowitz, this time to the surprisingly youthful and vigorous Detective Connie McDowell, as played by the extraordinarily glamorous Charlotte Ross, which is waiting for him not too very long after that. This pairing does perhaps stretch one or two lines of credulity, whilst maybe offering some vague hope of something or other to certain overweight, balding and often highly toxic American males. It could, of course, just be a whole load of wish fulfilment on the part of the scriptwriters, of course, but that's telly for you. Sometimes the fantasy is what we want, no matter how unlikely it might be. Detective Greg Medavoy is a character introduced in episode 3 and remains mostly present and correct throughout the entire 12-season run. Despite several ups and downs, his character suffers. He is played with a stammering air of fundamental decency by Gordon Clapp and features in one of the kindest scenes in the entire run when, after surgery, Andy has an embarrassing incident in the men's room and Greg is able to lend him, without judgement, a spare pair of trousers to wear. It's a nothing little moment, really, but those are the sorts of scenes that have stuck with me long, long after the scenes featuring the various scumbags have faded into the background. In the course of that first series, Greg Medavoy also has a fateful relationship. His is with the first of the series' great police administrative aid characters, one Donna Abandando, an impossibly glamorous Marilyn Monroe lookalike, as played by Gail O'Grady. This, I suppose, is because apparently in this kind of series, unlike in real life, you can only really have an intimate relationship with somebody who either works in the same room as you or has their name on the opening credits. Mind you, what powerful opening credits they are, with a throbbing, thrilling, blistering drumbeat backed by scenes of the hustle and bustle and demolition and rebuilding of New York life intercut with clips of our beloved characters as the tune segues into a far more thoughtful and wistful theme to introduce the characters in scenes from the series, before building up those powerful drums again to match the clattering of the New York subway train as it blasts into another station to reveal that memorable Detectives Badge series title card, a sequence of about 40 seconds that somehow came to symbolise the entire 
least for certain people of that generation. I always quite like the shot they chose for David Caruso's character in the original version, by the way, because it looks like he's being arrogantly dismissive of Nicholas Turturro's character of James Martinez as he offers him a hand to shake. Even though the scene as it plays out in the show is nothing like that at all, it does seem that already somebody in the cutting room is having a little dig at the show's leading man. Meanwhile, towards the end of the first series, the show manages to show the viewers that when he's not on the booze, Andy Sipowitz is actually a rather brilliant detective. Whether this became necessary as it had already become apparent that for future seasons the show was unlikely to retain its lead character is a distinct possibility, but it certainly makes for an uplifting end to the season when he actually manages to resolve a cold case of a missing child with a rather happy outcome for all concerned and reunites her with her troubled father, a man, however, who is determined to never lose hope. Because of that particular story thread, that final episode of the first season, Rockin' Robin, is, in all honesty, at least in part, one of the most upbeat episodes that the entire 261 episode run of NYPD Blue offers up, because, more often than not, this is a gritty, urban and often unpleasant take on life on the crime-ridden streets of a major international city, and it's very rare, for obvious reasons, that many punches are pulled. That said, because it was on air at the same time as NBC's Sublime Law and Order series for its entire run, it is interesting to me that the main difference between the two series seems to be mostly about how much they concentrate on the personal lives of the main protagonists. Happily for this viewer, at least, Law and Order, especially in its original Mothership series, seems to revel in being all about the crimes themselves, and what we do ever learn about the personal lives of our regular characters seems to trickle out almost by accident from time to time, and by keeping the police procedural half of the show Almost, but not entirely separate from the legal proceedings half, those messy clashes between the two parts of an uncomfortable whole seldom feel the need to interact. In contrast, NYPD Blue, however, gets down and dirty with its main characters, and their interactions with the legal side of things often seems to lead to titillating displays of artfully and carefully choreographed naked flesh, interactions that make even Frank Ferrillo's saucy shenanigans with Joyce Davenport way back in Hill Street Blues all seem rather tame in comparison. Still, if you are the sort of viewer who really feels the need to know all about the personal lives of your detective squad to enjoy a show then NYPD Blue is just the sort of television series for you however personally I believe that these are often the least interesting things that are going on in the storytelling Mind you, off-screen, the dramas were in many ways even more fraught than those playing out on screen and ultimately led to sweeping changes, which changed the nature of the show towards a more ensemble style rather than the John Kelly-centric series it had been in that admittedly powerful first year. Depending upon who you choose to believe, there are many reasons for these changes, which range from pay disputes a toxic working environment or even just the sheer arrogance of a hot new star seizing their moment to shine but the upshot of all of it was the sudden departure of David Caruso and wholesale changes in the show. However David Caruso did apparently rather reluctantly agree to appear in the opening four episodes of the second year to at least round off some storylines that had been left hanging and it is the stuff of television legend that once he had completed his final scene in the series he was off down the stairs and into a waiting limo almost as soon as the director yelled cut. Size of relief all round, it is said, unless your character's continuing narrative depended in large measure upon the John Kelly storylines, and certainly Stephen Bochco seems like he never forgave the man for what he thought of as this huge betrayal. His 2003 novel Death by Hollywood takes great delight in creating a very similar scenario to what occurred with David Caruso on NYPD Blue, and he seems to relish telling it all from his own particularly vitriolic point of view. Let's just say that on the page, the actor does not come out of it all that well. David Caruso's career, as an episode of South Park once joked, did rather nosedive for a while after this, but in later years the producers of CSI Miami put him in place as the lead of a very different television series, and he did at least stick around for ten years on that show. 
Ultimately, it is the unlikely figure of Dennis France who most benefited from this significant change in the series' focus, despite the producers bringing in an acknowledged TV star in the form of Jimmy Smith, once a huge part of the success of L.A. Law, to replace David Caruso early on in the second year. Jimmy Smith stuck around for nearly five years playing Detective Bobby Simone, a Latin American character who struck up a great, if occasionally somewhat fractious, partnership with Andy Sipowitz, and a far more intimate relationship with, no surprises here, his surprisingly glamorous colleague, Detective Diane Russell. But it was towards Andy Sipowitz that the writers turned their attention more and more as the series progressed, and this flawed but fascinating character, who in any other series would no doubt have continued to play second banana to the various conventionally good-looking leading men that they brought into play in partnership alongside him, very quickly became the heart and soul of the entire series, which is quite some feat when you consider where he started from in that opening episode. Throughout the series, however, our lead characters are often flawed or downright damaged human beings, and whilst Kim Delaney's character of Detective Diane Russell also had to struggle with a history of abuse, alcohol problems, and in year six becoming a widow, she was only one amongst many broken people who were struggling with their own issues whilst attempting to maintain law and order in an increasingly hostile New York City as the 90s ticked over into the new millennium. Not least of these characters was her strong-willed but naturally rather troubled female partner, Detective Jill Kirkendall, played by Andrea Thompson, who is possibly the most memorable pairing with Russell. In many ways, they resemble a kind of updated Cagney and Lacey duo based at the 15th Precinct. Kirkendall is introduced after another female detective, Adrienne Lesniak, appeared to be rather unceremoniously written out of the show at the end of the third series. This particular departure was after, no surprises here, Lesniak had been dating fellow detective James Martinez for a while, and then got a little bit weirdly possessive about him, in a manner that men writing women's roles in TV drama sometimes like to imagine motivates such characters. When Jimmy Smith departs in the Year 6 episode Hearts and Minds, which was incidentally once considered by TV Guide to be the 30th in its list of the 100 greatest TV episodes of all time, he is replaced for a couple of years by a troubled young detective called Danny Sorensen, in the real-life form of former child star Rick Schroeder, whose character became rather obsessed with his colleague, if you'll forgive my eye-roll, Diane Russell for a time before, after some apparent disillusionment with the direction his character was being taken in by the writers, being killed off-screen at around the time of the September 11th attacks on New York City, an event which did at least obliquely feature, as it had to really, in the following season's scripts. Stability of sorts would follow for the final four years of the show, with Andy's final detective partner of the series, one John Clark Jr., as played by Mark Paul Gosselaar. This also meant that Joe Spano, another Hill Street Blues regular, could be introduced briefly playing his father. Sipowitz by this stage is acting as a kind of mentor, or perhaps an older statesman figure, to most of the younger detectives who join the squad. Jimmy Smith does even cameo as Bobby Simone in season 10 when the show is going through something of a metaphysical phase, and Sipowitz is having visions. But NYPD Blue never shied away from having the occasional lapse into strangeness, which on occasion features just as much as the emphasis upon counselling and recovery does, as it was a very big topic in that era, especially in our perception of New Yorkers, so you might just might get a little bit tired of the conversations about alcoholism which take place across the various seasons, but it's worth noting that it was very important at that time that such problems were being addressed. Other characters came and went with increasing regularity over the years, with only Sipowitz and Medavoy surviving until the final episode, and even that particular show is set after Medavoy has retired. Troubled they might mostly have been, but characters as diverse as Henry Simmons, as Detective Baldwin Jones, Isai Morales, as Lieutenant Tony Rodriguez... Garcelle Beauvais as ADA Valerie Hayward and Jacqueline Obradors as Detective Rita Ortiz certainly keep the revolving casting doors of the 15th Precinct interesting throughout its 12-year run. 
even the strangely rubbish detective Eddie Gibson, as played by John F. O'Donoghue, gets a chance to shine in a position that really nobody should have ever promoted him to. But there we are, in the strange yet brutal world of the 15th precinct of the NYPD, sometimes, just sometimes, despite the horrific hardships that many of the characters have to endure, the least deserving ordinary Joe or Jane has something good happen to them, no matter how unlikely it may be. Occasionally in the show's later years, there was much talk of the programme struggling to find a suitable time slot on the network, but it still managed to defy expectations and continued on for at least a couple of years after several had already written it off. Despite all these and other problems, NYPD Blue managed to stagger on for 12 full seasons on American television, which when you consider the number of years other shows like the Law & Order franchise, the CSI franchise and the NCIS franchise have managed since might well appear to be something of a failure, but surviving 12 full seasons for any television show is actually a roaring success in my book, especially when you consider the many successful series that have vanished after 4, 5, 6 or 7 series, all of which are still both warmly remembered and highly regarded. Such series include TV legends like Starskin Hutch, Quantum Leap, The Rockford Files and three of the Star Trek series. So 12 straight years is a definite triumph, even if having finally ended in 2005, it's now 18 years since it was all over. And it's a show that is rarely talked about anymore. Granted, for viewers like me, it was rather difficult to follow the show in the UK, especially if you did not have access to satellite TV and were solely dependent upon free-to-air viewing for your television viewing. I'm pretty sure I managed to follow the show through to the end of Season 8 on Channel 4 back in the day, but I can't remember whether they got around to buying or showing the later seasons, or whether they allowed it to be snapped up by the then more niche broadcasting of Sky TV, as it vacuumed up popular favourites like some kind of kidnapping ring, in an extortionist attempt to extend its subscriber base by holding fans to ransom. Like fans of L.A. Lord found a few years earlier, loyally and eagerly following an imported American series for several seasons with no guarantee that it would be available for you to easily see once the current season ended. Rather too often, even that could be a problem if the schedulers decided that nobody was watching and shifted the show around the schedules into ever more inaccessible time slots, which of course would then rather bolster up their arguments about dwindling viewing figures. Rather strangely, however, I did get to see the occasional random episode of those later seasons when I took a couple of trips to the States on holiday. Day. Somehow I got to see one or two of the episodes featuring John Clark Jr. as played by Mark Paul Gosselaar from his first or second season and the opening pair from the final series introducing Curry Graham as the new squad commander Lieutenant Thomas Bale. This quite naturally led to me wanting to see more but after an initial release for the first two seasons on DVD in 2003 it would take another 10 years for all 12 to be available for sale in the UK after at least one lengthy gap of several years between releases, and so it wasn't until nearly a decade after they were first shown in the States that I was finally able to see how the storyline started in those handful of episodes finally played out. But I was interested enough and keen enough on the show to buy up all of the seasons as they became available, and spent several months binge-watching them on consecutive mornings. And, to be honest, it was really quite a sad day when I reached that final episode and that final tracking shot of Andy Sipowitz in the squad room as the 15th Precinct finally closed its doors forever. In the end, and probably not by design, NYPD Blue is something of a redemption story, at least as far as Andy Sipowitz is concerned. From the unpromising and downright awful character portrayed in that opening episode over the course of 12 very hard-fought years, we see him sober up, fall off the wagon, sober up again, become a father again. The loss of his son from his first marriage marks a huge turning point in one of the earlier seasons. He also loses a second wife in tragic circumstances, yet still manages to pick himself up and even find a third wife to help him with his struggles, all the time whilst helping to put away some 
some of the most dreadful of the bad guys ever seen on television. Justice and righteousness may not quite be two words you most associate with the character of Andy Sipowitz and his particular brand of what is right and proper and fair might not quite tally with your own, but you can't ever deny both his detective skills and his commitment to putting those bad guys away. Over 12 fascinating seasons, he changes from being one of New York's worst, on the very brink of being booted out, to becoming one of New York's finest, a decorated officer, and despite the fact that we're never truly sure that his underlying resentments and loathings have fully gone away, he transforms into someone who the rest of his squad can look up to and admire. As to whether he deserved any of it, of course, is down to the viewer. A lot of what was seen on screen over those 12 years might seem pretty unpalatable to modern audiences, so you do have to venture into the world of NYPD Blue with your eyes fully open to what you're going to get. But if you stick around, you're in for one heck of a journey. Many thanks to Martin for that. Yes, thank you, Martin. Not a show I'm that familiar with. I don't know about you, Lisa. I, I think I may have seen an episode or two, but I, I've watched a lot of epi- um, American police things over the years, and it gets confusing after a while. But always good to hear about things we're not that familiar yes. with. Yes. Martin's show, Vision on Sound, continues on Sundays and Wednesdays now yes. on Fab Radio International. It and does. You, you were on there recently talking about... It's a sin. But now for a show that we have covered a few times, mm-hmm. but from a new, new perspective, as Paul and a new voice in the form of Muffley on Tour arrived to talk about... The Avengers. the archives people it's me paul the shy yeti back to discuss uh another show that i have mentioned before um i'm going to be talking about the avengers but i'm not doing it by myself i've got um got muffley on tour here making his debut on man the archives hi muffley mr chandler we're needed yes (laughs) hello thank you thank you for having me i'm glad that we'll be discussing the avengers because it's always good to talk about and um we're going to talk about sort of two different episodes, but both from the same season, um, the black and white MPL season, um, which I think, yeah, that's season four. Uh, I guess a bit confusing once you get past <laughs> there's debates about um, seasons being split and how many seasons there actually were, but I, I tend to think that there are six seasons. But, uh, but I know it gets a bit confusing, but no, no confusion with season four. So um, what episode did you want to talk about? 
I am going to talk about the hour that never was. But uh, first of all, I thought I'd give you a bit of background about how I was introduced to the Avengers. Mm. Uh, so as we know, it's a cornerstone of cult TV. And um, I first started watching it when it appeared on Channel 4 in the early 80s. And um, it was on a Saturday night, from what I can remember. And it was very much a family event for us. Uh, my mum and dad would be enjoying a glass of port. And my brother and I would be living the high life on muffins and chocolate. Um, so, yeah, there we go. And so um, just before I go any further, I would mention that um, the Kinky Boots podcast is brilliant and does a great deep dive and is working its way through all of the Avengers episodes, so that's well worth listening to. This is very much <laughs> my own personal take on this episode, and also I know Paul that you've done some stuff on Vision and Sound be- um, before as well. I, I sort of just came in right at the end of them showing episodes on Saturday night. I don't know how many times they showed it in that era, but I remember. I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember this particular season being shown on Channel Four more like at six o'clock, um, possibly. But because uh, I, I I think they also showed them a bit out of order because uh, the first episodes I ever saw were like very late Emma Peel ones in on the Saturday night. That's and it. Suddenly, yeah. And then suddenly it was sort of in black and white more at tea time. But whether they'd already shown it once and it was a second repeat, I I, I don't properly know. But uh, yeah. Because I remember I missed one, and um, my dad didn't give me the full title of it, and it was a tire episode. And he basically says, oh, there's lots of versions of Steed going around and dying. Uh-huh. And it was, yeah, they keep killing Steed and stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and it wasn't until sort of a bit later on that I actually worked out what he was talking about. But um, no, it was very much something that sort of um, we used to watch as a family. And um, my dad always had this thing. I think I mentioned before, he wouldn't refer to it as the Avengers. He'd just refer to it as Steed. He'd say, Steed's on tonight. <laughs> and, it's like, and he would do it with um, Time Team as well. So he never referred to Time Team as Time Team. He <laughs> just would refer to it as Baldrick. Or Baldrick's on tonight. <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. That's um, that's the way things are. So, yes, going to look first at the arm that never was. Now, for me, um, I think the black and white's Steed and Mrs. Peel um, episodes are possibly the pinnacle of the show. Um, the way I look at it, it's very much the revolver to the, like, the colour Mrs. Peel episodes, which are a bit like Sergeant Pepper, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, there's a faint echo of the 50s in these episodes. I mean, Death at Bargain Prices feels like it's from sort of another age. That's definitely one that feels like it's got an echo of the 50s, as has this one, I guess, just the whole sort of um, air-based thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the colour ones become a bit more swinging. And then I found with the colour ones, with the Mrs. Peel ones as time went on, they did become a bit sort of formulaic and yeah. could be overly wacky. So I actually welcomed the, the Tara sort of um, season because I think it was a bit darker and sort of went in a sort of, you know, different direction. So, um, yeah, I am very much a fan of this first first season with Mrs. Peel in the black and white. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely my favourite of the two Emma Peel seasons. And, uh, yeah, as, you, as you know, I'm a Tara fan as well. Mm. So, um, but I, I agree that the colour um, uh, Emma Peel season does become a bit formulaic. But although it's sort of formulaic in the middle, I think it feels like some of the ones towards the end of the season start to break that formula again. But... Um, but then also, I don't, never know whether we uh, 
we necessarily they were necessarily made in the order we saw them in. So yeah, I'd have to. Um, but it does seem it does definitely seem to be a show where there were some episodes that everyone seems to like, but then there were lots of episodes that some people like. But I don't think there's any that anyone says, well, this is, you know, every, everyone's a fan of of of, of 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 some some of them, you know, uh, some some of the ones that you see on websites being that people say, oh, they don't like this one, often ones I really like. So, um, What's your thoughts on A Touch of Brimstone, the Peter Wingard episode, which was banned, I think, on the first um, showing in the US? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I like it, but it's been a very long time. I almost think I don't watch that one very often because it's talked about so much. But uh, Sure, yeah. Um, but but The Hour That Never Was is definitely one I, I see you know quite quite a lot um and like the town of no return as well which is yeah, uh, yeah. So, sort of the one of the well one of the first ones i i saw um and the man who, the manager of surrey green of course uh there are various ones depends how long i i very rarely sit and watch in order from i i I, I, and I never kind of trust myself to to do that. I, I, I so when I come into it, it's more like a, oh, watch your favourites, or watch ones you can't remember that much. Um, I think doing this article or doing the research for this article has um, I, I probably had the biggest Avengers watch, um, and it's still ongoing uh, for for quite a while. So uh, which is not yeah. a bad thing at all. Yeah, I think I'll be going back. I mean, we'll be touching on your episode later. I'll be going back and looking at the Kathy Gale episodes again, I think. Mm. Um, but what we did, we've got BritBox and um, the Avengers, very big in France. Um, mm. I'll try and get the pronunciation right. It's Chapin Milan and Botchukui, bowler hat and leather boots. Mm-hmm. And so um, Angelique likes it. Her favourite's The Persuaders, though, but she still enjoys watching the Avengers. And um, we did sort of a bit of a sort of binge watch over a sort of a few weeks like from start to finish um from the yeah this black and white um season onwards so as to why i chose the album there was apart from liking the story i think it's because it has a personal aspect it's mm. centered on an raf airbase which growing up in east anglia brings a certain familiarity so where i was in Cambridgeshire, there were numerous world war ii air bases such as bourne bassingbourne oakington waterbeach and so on the most famous one is duxford which is now part of the imperial war museum and um always remember that because my dad used to work opposite the mm. imperial war museum and when they had air displays on in the summer um, rather than um, paying the sort of admission fee, he'd park in his <laughs> works car park and we'd watch it from there. <laughs> so, yeah, a, a good money-saving aspect. And also, I used to work at um, Cambridge Airport, which had been an RAF base in the war. And um, one thing you used to see all the time was, was um, bins with the, with the acronym FOD on. Do you know what FOD mm. is? Mm, no, I'm guessing, but no. It's Foreign Object Debris. So yeah. rather than just saying litter, you'd see all yeah. these bins that say FOD on. Because I've spoken, you know, when I was there working, it was very much we were sort of refitting Hercules transports and what have you. And um, obviously you want to have as clean an environment as possible because you don't want things getting trapped in engines and so forth. But yeah, I've always remember this acronym FOD. There'd even be posters saying, beware of FOD. And I thought, what's, what's this FOD thing? It took me about a week or so for someone to tell me. That sounds so, like a kind of MPL episode in itself. I know, yeah. So um, 
yeah, very much surrounded by air bases, and they do sort of have that otherworldliness. And I think, yeah, the Owl That Never Was is a prime example of what is called Avengerland, that sort of post-war, post-war world that is both familiar and mysterious. You know, you've got cosy villages, quaint pubs, country houses, but then somewhat deserted streets, an absence of police. Or can you can you tell me an episode where a policeman of sorts does feature? Um, well, there's two actually I can think of. Actually, it's a slightly trick question. I probably I could probably say something like the town they return, but probably that's not right. <laughs> there is Murdersville, uh, where um, once Mrs. Peel twigs what's going on, she gets a bash on the head. Yeah. But the locals uh, make out that she's had a car crash. Mm. And then um, she asked if someone can call the police. And one of the locals dresses up as a policeman. Mm-hmm. And then also it's epic as well. The, oh. the other Peter Wingard episode, which has got, um, trying to remember the name, it's Peter Sellers' mate uh, with a moustache, come to me soon. Um, he dresses up as a David Lodge he dresses up as a policeman and gets um, swiftly dispatched by Peter Wingard. So yeah, police don't tend to feature in the Avengers. And um, I suppose the other reason that I like the Avengers um, from a different aspect is that I went to a university in Hertfordshire, which is pure Avenger land. So yeah, I do recognize some of the locations and um, yeah, my brother lived in St. Albans for a while and sort of, yeah, was near to Boreham Wood and what have you. So, yeah, very much this episode, I would say, epitomises um, Avengerland. Now, the location for this is RF Bovingdon, which I think was fairly near to Bournemouth. And it's been used for a number of other films and productions, such as Mosquito Squadron, uh, Hanover Street, Rogue One, and... Uh, <laughs> Confessions of a Driving Instructor, <laughs> and also, and also uh, the Blake's seven episode harvest kairos as well so there you go and i think it's a bit like um is it leavesden where they did harry potter's it's now having a new lease of life i think they do dancing on ice there as well now so yeah based on these i think the um there's i mean there may even be other episodes uh where, where you've got uh like sort of empty spaces or empty places mm. uh, and, and i think that's one of the reasons I like that that never was. But uh, I was also thinking about you've got the the morning after, which is a Tarakin episode, which I want to rewatch. That is uh, St. Albans, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, St. Albans. Yeah. And then of course Sleep, Sleeper in the New Avengers mm. is, is also sort of. Uh, um, you get, I think it just works really well when you get a busy area totally empty. It's it's sort of fascinating to watch because you don't usually see. Um, sort of busy places so empty uh, uh, and it was interesting and I think all those three all, all three of those stories are quite different ways of doing that um, yeah very much so very much so so in terms of the story we have Steed and Mrs Peel um, they're out in the country now I can't remember if they they are actually going to this reunion do at the RAF base or they just happen to be close to it so um, apologies for that but um they um, have this crash, and importantly, the clock stops just before 11. They make their way to the airbase, and then they see this milkman, but very quickly he gets shot dead. So mm. it's just very, very sort of bizarre what's going on. Mm. So in true Avengers style, they decide to investigate the base further. Um, 
just as Mrs. Peel discovers the body of the milkman on his floats, there's this like really weird noise that's going around. Um, and then the noise stops. Steed returns to the lounge to get himself a drink and meets uh, Roy Kinnear. Now, what did you think of Roy Kinnear in this episode? Because I'm kind of like, did you need that person in the episode? Because I don't know. Sort of, um, a... yeah, I'm not sure that he's that uh, um, that useful. Because then, of course, uh, well, at that point, he's the, the 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 only character though that they've spoken to properly. Because it's not until it sort of re-loops around where, where Steve, well, I don't want to give it away because that's that. Uh, yeah, but, sure, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, there's not many characters up until that point. Um, so, it, yeah, I don't I don't know whether you'd have missed, missed, missed him if he hadn't been there. But, uh. And also it's just where the sort of, I mean, it's very much, I do feel there's quite a few plot holes in this um, episode, but you kind of sort of, as with quite a few of the Avengers episodes, you put them to one side and just sort of go with the um, go with the flow. So I'm um, still a bit unsure about sort of Roy Kinnear's character in terms of the comedy sort of relief and just the, if he's needed there or not. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, so we're transported back to Steed in his crashed car, uh, but no Mrs. Peel. So we're kind of, as you say, looping back. So Steed goes back to the airbase, but when he gets there, the party's in full swing. Um, I'm trying to also work out if St- which you know what's um, Steed's military service career has he worked in all services <laughs> like yeah. is, he, is he army navy marines and air force has he done it all somehow in sort of Avengerland yeah. it's never sort of quite sort of work it out completely um, and uh, Mrs Peel nowhere to be seen uh, Roy Kinnear has been um, killed and then he finds this clinic. And then there's a bit of a punch up and then Mrs. Peel just for a change is tied up and no memory of events and then finds um, that or they find that, you know, it's this drill that's causing this thing and it's a way of sort of being able to sort of hypnotize or program people. Mm. And it's um, Adam Adamant himself, isn't it? Um, Gerald Harper. Yeah. Who's behind the dastardly scheme. And uh, yeah, there is the obligatory and Avengers punch up and episode finishes i think in some respects i mean i think the plot is perfectly serviceable but i think it's just the sort of um the location and sort of the feeling the episode gives off that i i really like and as i say growing up in an area um with lots of air bases which were kind of otherworldly there was one as i said there was one born airfield which was near us which um when we were teenagers, being very serious in, you know, our, one of our first bands, we did sort of album cover shoots there, looking very earnest because it was all a bit otherworldly. So I think it's just sort of the general sort of atmosphere rather than saying, oh, this is a cracking story, like, you know, one of the best stories. It's more just the sort of overawing sort of feeling or that sort of slight sort of uneasiness, I would say. From, from doing my own films back in the 90s, mm. uh, often locations you had a location or or you had a prop uh, and you could just build something around i'm sure this isn't the way this was done but it, uh, the, the, a good location can do a lot of the hard work um just just as you know just just for setting the scene oh, go back go back to legopolis again so yeah um yeah, yeah. whacking great big radio telescope and i think i've mentioned before where i grew up in cambridgeshire there's the mullard radio observatory so you're just in this countryside you've got a string of radio telescopes which is looks very bizarre mm. but you just get used to it 
Yeah, that was also used as a very earnest teenage band photo shoot as well. A bit of a, bit of a pattern emerging there. I, so, I remember yeah. what, what, watching the um, the the yeah, that never was again recently. I, just just the way that they the, the way that you enter the is it the control tower? You have to go up some ladders. And then, yes, <laughs> and, uh, and then um, I, I wonder if there are any outtakes where where Dino Rig didn't hop off the ladder so nimbly and because you know if you try to do it on camera you probably end up coming down hard on one of your uh, on your ankle or something but she makes it seem very um well very emma peelish when she jumps yeah. off the ladder when i was working at cambridge airport with some other lads um because it's such a big area um we would, it would be the thing we'd get some jobs to do but even our boss would say yeah just stretch it out a bit go disappear for like the rest of the day and so you'd literally find like um a hanger to like just go fall asleep in or read a book or something in his rainbow cell or go exploring as you say so there was a few times we were sort of precariously on ladders ourselves like sort of trying to get on get onto the roofs of things which um could have turned out sort of quite um bad but we're still here to tell the tale. So, um, so overall, you're very much a fan of the hour. Never was as well. Would you say? Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's definitely one of yeah one of my go-to's. Yeah, I would say so as well. But um, we're sticking with this season. And what are we going on to now, Paul? Well, we're going on to the house that Jack built. Mm. But before we talk about that, it's a it's a funny one because I there are other episodes that are a bit like it, but there's some confusion and I had to rewatch and do a bit of research because I used to think that the house that Jack built uh, was remade as the Joker, but really uh, the Joker is a remake of a Kathy Gale episode. Don't look behind you, which That's I don't it. think I'd watched till today. Um, so I watched that and, 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 and don't look behind you and the Joker have whole chunks of script that are identical. And even uh, I think at the end of the joke, cause I've, of course I've watched them out of order. The Joker uh, ends with Steve saying, um, oh, do you think I scared him? And that's exactly what he says at the end of. Yeah, you know, yeah. it really is the same. So goodness knows if this is all supposed to be canon. Um, uh, why is Steve not going? Just a minute. Just did this happen <laughs> about three years ago? Yeah. Um, now the house that Jack built is, is um, also the, the sort of the plot a plot where uh, Emma gets sort of turns up and goes to a house where she's been invited and bad things happen and mainly Steed isn't around. Um, in fact, out of the three episodes, don't is look it, behind. Is it on the premise of meeting a chess grandmaster? Is that correct? Um, I th- or is that the Joker? I, I do get that's confused. Definitely now. happens in the Joker, and it's definitely something. It's an, an article that she's written. Well, it's in the Joker. It, Emma's written an article for this magazine. Uh, in Don't Look Behind You, Kathy's written an article for a magazine. In fact, the episode starts with the the, the mysterious person cutting out a picture from the magazine and chopping it. it up. So mm-hmm. it literally, I'm like, yeah, this definitely happened. In the, and and uh, whereas the house that Jack built, um, I've watched so many like back to back of the three episodes. I can't remember why she goes there. It's it's either a friend or it's a, a invitation. Um, in in don't look uh, don't look behind you steed actually accompanies her almost all the way there she, she, he drives her there which doesn't happen i mean it's a very it, both episodes those two episodes are set um down down in dartmoor or something like that um and it doesn't look like dartmoor at all it's, <laughs> it's like a pleasant sunday afternoon drive whereas it would be quite a long drive from london but um it's the avengers it's fine um but i've also seen uh both 
both Donut Behind You and the Joker have a weird girl who's when when well Kathy and Emma arrive, um, the person that she thinks she's going to meet isn't there, and this strange woman's there, and there Indeed. are a few other characters, um, and yeah, there's a strange man character. It turns up in both of them, um, and then it, in both of them, it turns out that it's uh, exes of uh, it, it, uh, of the the two ladies. Yeah. Um, but in the house that Jack built, she's bequeathed the house. So that's uh, yeah, yeah, where, that's right. as you say, you right. get sort of a crossover. So yeah, it's yeah. not to do with chess yeah. or no. bridge or whatever. It's no. to do with yeah. She. I've, she, I've heard the house that Jack built described as being. Um, having scenes that are slightly boring in the middle, and completely disagree with that because what, what it, it turns out that the house is very um, advanced. It literally, she discovers that, like, she thinks she's she sort of goes through a door and she finds that she's in a place that doesn't look at all like you know, with corridors going off and 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 staircases and and a very sort of modern because it's quite an old it's an old house but just on the exterior yeah i yeah. love the background noise yeah i'm not sure yeah. if we can get that into the podcast but if we can yeah. do a sample of the background noise i, I love that yeah um and 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 again it, you know she she's trying to get out of this maze and every time she tries she she finds herself back in the same place to the point where she leaves like a lipstick mark on the uh, uh, to sort of guide her Going that's pretty to, much that's what I do in Ikea to be honest yeah I leave yeah. a lip <laughs> <laughs> I was also going back to Logopolis that's uh, yeah that's sure true yeah. it's all connected yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think for the same reason that I enjoyed uh, in Logopolis where they go into the TARDIS within the TARDIS within the TARDIS um, I, I, I find the scenes that are that are set in this sort of maze very very interesting and I I, I, I think um I much prefer the house track built to um, Don't Look Behind You or the Joker, uh, even though it's got. It does have one other character uh, who she finds, um, and and, and um, you often find in all of those episodes, you often find that Steed knows a bit more than, um, and is sort of knows that whichever. You know, whether it be Emma, whether it be um, Kathy, n- knows that something's going on and has had to kind of um, allow it to happen so they can catch the person who's involved. It reminded me, of, uh, back to Doctor Who again, it reminds me a bit of how um, Sylvester McCoy's Doctor often like, knew that Ace, uh, in like Curse of Fenwick, knew, knew stuff about Ace and had to sort of, you know, had to let things happen or or, or, or sort of, uh, or let upsetting things happen even uh, for the pieces of the puzzle to come together. And Indeed, yeah. Um, but I, I, I think um, go, going back to the uh, Don't Look Behind You and um, and, and the Joker, it's, it's difficult to, I, I think Connor Blackman probably just about wins out in convincing you that she was really sort of upset that that it turns out to be an ex-lover of hers, mm. uh, I think Emma um, is a little bit is a little bit cooler um, about it all. But uh, yeah, I was I was I was quite in, impressed with Hon's acting in 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 those scenes. But it's not such a personal. Um, it's not such a personal sort of setup in the house that Jack built, but um, but but it's 
it, 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 it reminds me a bit of the Avengers meets the adventure game. Because... Yes, yes. <laughs> but how is it Grogna Grogna plants? Yes. Yeah. Well, because the, the, there's the, there's a um, basically the person who's um, uh, well saying it's not personal is it's probably not true because the person it's a it's a company that it's the company that um, Emma's father owned. Indeed, uh, is an employee, um, and so was it Night Industries? Night yes, Industries? because I didn't know that we we knew that she was Emma Knight before That's she um, got got married. So I, I was kind of like, "Ooh, I didn't, don't think I did. I yeah. know that." Um, and, and the the guy is Professor Keller, who got laid off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and but that's the other thing is because it, it's sort of it's it's done and recorded and the guy is actually that's causing all the problem is already dead um the the ha- the house is his invention and, and the walls will, can move and all sorts of things are going mm. on but the, he, the threat is no longer alive but the house is the threat yeah uh, i mean they did a they did uh, an episode of the new avengers where a, bu- a building was um uh, an office building was was um one of the, the later season two episodes of New Avengers, uh, but but I mean that's it's quite a similar some similar elements, but quite different as well. Um, and then there's the Tara episode Killer with um, it's not Enyak, it's oh what's the name of it? It's going to bug me now. But there yeah, that's got the the Killer computer in, which mm. Steve manages to um, manages to sort of um, outwit. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I. I, I because but, but basically, they uh, kind of wants Emma to kind of um, commit suicide, basically, which is you know quite dark. Really. Yeah, or um, or kind of sort of mentally torture her before she yeah, commits suicide. Yeah, yeah. and as, it is very dark. Yeah, because they they he, he sort of say that it won't be that that I mean you don't actually see it, but apparently the house can provide for her food wise, but it still it, it expects her to kind of completely lose it in that she can't get out and um and there's a, a lift there's a, there's, a, there's a lift which has like a um which she's supposed to go in which will sort of electrocute her to death um a suicide box they call it um, um again this is quite heavy stuff isn't it for mm-hmm. something which is meant to be sort of yeah. you know, sort of going into sort of camp 60s you yeah. know sort of swinginess yeah yeah the, the the whole the whole start the whole start of it um, is is really so because in those the other two that have the, the the similarities you don't it's just the house and and in um, uh, in the Joker the house has doors and that swing around which have jokers on and stuff mm. so there's a little bit of changing the traditional house to make it more with tricks and, and hidden rooms and stuff but but um, in the house of Jackpot it's a lot it's a lot more sort of you get to see behind the scenes. It's all quite interesting, and and the the adventure game comparison is because she has to kind of work out um, trying to make the computer backfire on itself, and there's a, yeah. a, a a hole that she has to put, and she's like, well, maybe we can market this as an escape room. We can yeah. do Avengers, you know, <laughs> the house that Jack built escape room. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, in the same way as the as the adventure game, you have to kind of put this and this together to make this, which yeah. then allows you to. That's what Emma's doing in that episode, um, and um, you know, 
Yeah, I, I just, it's, it's one of the ones that stuck in my head. Um, and it, but it's one that I perhaps forgotten that I enjoyed so much because I do tend to think about things like um, Manager of Sorry Green because of the sci-fi element and mm. um, Seeds of Doom being one of my favourite Doctor Who, um, uh, well, no, being my favourite Doctor Who story. Uh, and, and you know, I don't come back to the Avengers as often as I should do. Um, so it's good doing articles like this. It, it kind of makes me uh, go back and, and uh, it's one of the shows that I've got in the most formats uh, that that are kind of that that I can get hold of very easily should I want it. it it's sort of in that in that term in, in those terms partly because it is relatively easy to get hold of. It's probably okay. one question about Seeds of Doom. Mm. Who's your favourite character out of the Tony Beckley or the John Cal- Jalis character? Probably. And I think I know which one Troby and Lisa would go for on this, but um, but which one? Uh, Probably Be- Tony. Be- I like I, I like the, the Tony Beckley thing. Yeah, yeah I do enjoy Tony things Beckley. that he's in. He does tend to play the basically variations on the same character. He was in the Italian Job, and he was in a Roger Moore film called Gold. He was in a Pink Panther as well, which is quite interesting because it was like a comedy film. But again, he played it straight, and that's what gets the laughs and stuff. But um, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean. As a show, it's probably the, the show that I have um, most to hand as a sort of uh, Doctor Who and, and the Avengers um, sort of up there. I mean, it's, it's good that they are so so readily available. I, I like to have shows I really like. I like to have in different formats depending on where, wherever I am. I, I, I know I can get hold of them, sort of thing. True. Um, yeah. I, well, um, I, I think that's about all we've got time for. But but um, yeah, it's been good to revisit. Uh, um, black and white Emma Peel and, uh, and I, I hope the listeners jump in and check out some Avengers episodes it's always a good time to be uh, re-watching the Avengers indeed indeed and um, on that note we should probably set up the champagne fountain pool oh yeah definitely yes <laughs> uh, okay um, we'll be back again soon and um, uh, we'll return to um, Andrew and Lisa Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to Paul and Muffley for that. Yes, thank you, boys. They can both be heard on Paul's show, The Shy Life Podcast, of course. They can indeed. Now, the Seeds of Doom, favourite character. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know about favourite character, 
But favourite actor has, of course, to be John Chalice. Of course, yes. As the he's the only one who's ever sent us sweeties in the form of Newbury fruits. He has indeed. And if you'd like to see us um, trying the Newbury fruits, you can find the video on YouTube. Indeed, it's it's called our our was it our new Boise fruits or something? Uh, something isn't it? witty like that. Yeah. yeah. But uh, we're coming to the end of the episode, believe it or not. We are. It's flown by. Mm. So we'll say thank you to everyone for helping. Yes. And thank you to you for listening. Yes. Uh, we hope to do some more in-conversations as well. With so new people. We shall see. We shall mm. see how that works out. But to round off, here's you and me looking at... The Shadow of the Tower. <laughs> afternoon lisa good afternoon andrew that was dangerously high pitched it was i might have i might have an accident if i'm not careful okay you like a bit of tudor don't you i do i'm very very fond of the tudors right so today we're going to talk about the shadow of the tower Mm -hmm. which is from when 1972 1972 january 1972 to march 1972 13 episodes which is longer than any previous tudor historical series yeah because previously we've had Two serials. Yes, you had Six Wives of Henry VIII in 1970 and Elizabeth Sarah in 1971. Those were both 90-minute things, weren't they? they were. Whereas now we're in a more sort of traditional 50-minute yes. slot. Yeah, a more manageable slot, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's almost the Z cars of the Tudor yes. period, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it is. But you think it's the best? I, I do think it's the best. I think it's the most interesting. Yeah. Um, it's it features uh, the reign of Henry the Seventh, mm-hmm. who was the the founder of Tudor Tudor dynasty, yeah. and I think he's very underrepresented. Yeah, everybody knows about Henry the Eighth and Elizabeth the First. Yeah, but nobody knows about Henry the Seventh, okay. and nobody really seems to care either. <laughs> so. Because you've you've not met any of them these these kings and queens yet, have no, you? Cause not we, any of them, we, we no, no. We should say recently on the Shy Life podcast, you yes. uh, travelled back in time and met a few kings, didn't you? Yes, and including James the first. Oh, here he comes! Hello, lassie! I've I've just popped in to say hello, and I I just wondered, is young Paul about? No, no, he's not here today, James. Oh, I'll go upstairs and ha- have a look for him. Okay, you do that. Okay, goodbye. Bye. Yeah, so you've been time travelling. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but I think you'd like to meet Henry VII, would I, you? I would quite like to meet Henry VII, just to see what he was actually like. Yeah. Because um, particularly towards the end of his reign, he's, he's perceived to be a bit miserly mm. and 
miserable and but you, it, which is totally understandable because he'd lost his wife and his eldest son by that point and several other children yeah which is not going to put you in the best of moods so a bit of context yes so it's battle of bosworth field isn't it um, or just the battle of bosworth um, yeah. which also features in the first episode of the black adder it does yes sees richard the third defeated yes and henry the seventh crowned crowned well not technically crowned he they they it's, the series starts off at the end of the Battle of Bosworth because mm. there's absolutely not a chance in hell they can do that because it's studio bound. It's a very studio yeah. series. The isn't entire it? series is very studio bound. Where you get an, um, in Henry the Eighth and Elizabeth Hall, you get a little bit of outside mm. filming. This, there's nothing. It's yeah. all studio bound. So is it is it a bit cheaper? I mean, it's a shorter running time in, in its yeah. studio. So. I, I would say it's probably a bit cheaper, and perhaps that's where it suffers a little bit yeah. um, for not having outside filming. But then I, Claudius doesn't have outside mm. filming, and that's absolutely regarded as a classic. But as we go through these, I think we'll find that it's much more varied it in storytelling yes. than either of those yeah. earlier it, series. It's, it's very much a kind of anthology series mm. in the way but all set in the reign of henry the seventh yeah so there, there's there's a lot more variety isn't there, there is. yes. i mean there are there are an awful lot of familiar names and faces yeah. involved but but who's henry the seventh yeah henry the seventh is played by james maxwell who's yeah. jackson in um underworld. underworld he's also in um the 70s Father Brown with the most extraordinary accent yeah. and he's in the pilot episode of Raffles yeah. with another extraordinary accent. Hello, is it over a window? Yes. He sounds a bit like James the he First. He does sound actually. a bit like James the First, yes. Hmm. Yeah. Suspicious that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but half past eight, yeah. Tuesday the 6th of January, yeah. 1972 on BBC Two. I think it's also shown at 8 o'clock later on. Okay. It sort of varies between 8 and 8.30. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll go through it. But it just says, on the Battle of Bosworth, Henry Tudor finds the crown of England. Like, it's just sort of... Yeah, it's just laying there. It's, it's lying there. Yeah. However, three people have a stronger claim to it. A man, a boy, and a woman. Yes. So, what's all this about, then? Well, basically, Henry Tudor had a very small claim to the throne of England. Mm. But he also had the blood of many Welsh royals yeah. running through his veins. So, he, you know... he. He could have sort of claimed it through that, in a way. But yeah, his his mother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, was the great-granddaughter, or the great-great-granddaughter of John of Gaunt, mm-hmm. who was the son of Edward III, the yeah. chivalry nerd. I can't ever say that now that saying Edward that. III, the chivalry nerd. Good evening. <laughs> I, I am making my round table. That's him, yeah. You've met him as well. I've met him as well, yeah. Uh, he wasn't married to her great-grandmother, to the grandmother... He did later marry her, and all the children were legitimised. But technically, they weren't uh, to the throne. Right. But by the time that Bosworth comes round, there are no Lancastrian heirs left. All the Lancastrian heirs have been killed, because for various reasons, by the House of York. So Richard III usurps the throne in 1483, and that didn't please a lot of people a lot of Lancastrians who who didn't think he was the rightful king so basically they plotted against him and and Bosworth is the result of that let's go through some actors yeah you're going to see obviously we said uh, James Maxwell yes 
an awful lot of familiar names. Dennis Carey, John Franklin Robbins, Colin mm-hmm. Jeevans, yeah. Gorn Granger, yeah. Christopher Neen. Mm-hmm. Who's astonishing. Yeah. He's only in one episode and it's it must be a relatively early part for him. He's done a few, you know, about six or seven things before this. Yeah. But this is just before he does Dracula AD 72. Yeah. Before he starts to get the villainous parts. And he plays the Earl of Warwick, who is the son of um, the Duke of Clarence, who was the brother of the king, the, one of the previous kings. And he's been locked in the tower for 13 years, ostensibly to keep him safe, but really just to keep him out of the way. Yeah. And he's, he's, he really is an innocent. He's, had, he's got no life experience. So in a way, he might have had a sort of learning difficulty, or it might have just been that he'd been locked away with no interaction with anybody else. But it's the most extraordinary performance. You've also got John Bennett. Yes. Peter Jeffrey, yes. who we'll talk about. Yeah. Who's absolutely shortly. superb. Michael Ripper. Yes. And uh, who? Oh, yes. And there's also John Junkin in his comedy. Oh teeth. gosh, yes. We will get on to him. We'll get onto that one yeah. as well. But the first episode, do you think it sets it up well? I think it does. Yeah. The first three episodes are linked. Yeah. In a way, or first four episodes. That's it's it's the sort of talking about the um, what happens when you come to a throne where nobody knows you because mm-hmm. you've not Henry the Seventh didn't live in the country for thirteen years before Bosworth. Um, he, he he had to go and be in France because he was a sort of on the wrong side. So nobody who knew who knew who he was. So it's it's kind of about what happens when you get an unknown quantity and how you keep the throne and how you keep yourself and your family safe. Yeah, so episode one is Crown in Jeopardy. Yes. Episode two is Power in the Land. Then yes. episodes three and four are the schooling of the apes. Sorry, the schooling of apes and the crowning of apes. Yes. So you can sort of tell that they're, they're, they're linked. There's two links. Yeah. That's looking at yeah. Lambert Simnel, who is a pretender who they claimed was the Earl of Warwick. Yeah. So basically, um, they took him off to um, Ireland where he was pl- proclaimed king, uh, crowned him with a crown from a statue of the Virgin Mary and brought him back to this country. And then uh, he's, well, not his cousin because he wasn't the Earl of Warwick, but the Earl of Warwick's cousin, the Earl of Lincoln, who was a prince. Well, he was a royal. He was descended through uh, one of Edward the Four Sisters. Basically... He fights a battle for him, but then he's gonna—he's not gonna be king. If he wins, the Earl of Lincoln will be king, and mm. he'll be shoved, shoved off somewhere. Mm. Is it vaguely like the structure of the first four episodes of Blake Seven in that it's linked, and then you have more sort of individual in a way, yeah. Episodes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so episode two's got Prince Arthur. Yes, you Prince, better say who Prince, Prince Arthur Prince is Arthur or was. Is, was born. Sorry, he's <laughs> <laughs> not born now. Um, in fourteen eighty. Six, and he is the eldest son of Henry the Seventh and Elizabeth of yeah. York. So he was going to be king. He would have been instead of Henry the yeah. Eighth. Had he not died when he was uh, fifteen, he would have been king, and life could have been yeah. very different for this country. But Henry the Eighth ends up marrying uh, Catherine of Aragon. Yeah, who was going to be? Who did marry? Who did marry Prince, Prince Arthur? Prince Arthur, which yeah. caused all sorts of problems. So that's, later. The, that's the whole storyline of, of yeah. Henry the Eighth devolves from that, doesn't yes. it? Yeah. So you said about Lambert Simnel in mm-hmm. in episode two. Yeah. Um, isn't there some other other pretenders as well? Oh, there's there's a lot of pretenders that, through his reign. That's why it's it's really strange that the story is not better known because yeah. there's a lot of people 
saying that they're king. Putting in claims. Putting yeah. claims. There's a lot of... There's a revolt in Cornwall that nobody's ever, really ever heard of. So is, is there a feeling that history is very much in the balance in this period? Yes. Because if, if one of these claims had been successful... Yeah, it would have been very different. The whole of history would be very, very different. It would different. be different. It's, it's this, these little uh, what-ifs, because mm. it's like the what-if of Prince Arthur. What yeah. would have happened had he not died? Yeah. And he'd gone on to become king. Would he and Catherine of Aragon had a male heir? Yeah. Because there's a theory that the reason that Henry VIII and Catherine Aragon didn't have a male heir is that he had some sort of chromosome problem, which meant that he it, it didn't really sit well with other people. Yeah. So all the children kept being born dead. Yeah. Not all of them, but you know. But uh, shall we move on to... One of the standout episodes. The standout episode, I think. This is, this is yeah. your favourite episode. It is. Yeah. Episode five, The Serpent and the Comforter. Yes. So what's all this about then? So this, and this is a really strange, in a way it's a strange episode, but this episode could be a play for today. Yeah. You could put this one on and you don't need to have seen the episodes before and you don't need to see the episodes after. You can just watch this episode on its own as a play. Yeah. Um. It's, and, and none of the, like... Henry the Seventh is in it, but he, he's just called the king. Mm. So you've got the king and the prisoner and the guard and uh, the priest and all these sorts of different characters. Yeah, because the credited cast is the king, the prisoner, the guard, the soldier, the priest. Yeah. That's the priest being James Bree. James Brew. Brew, yeah. 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 But Peter Jeffrey is the prisoner. Yes. But why is he a prisoner? Um, he's a prisoner because he's a heretic and he's basically... he He's... um. A lolliard, which basically means that he thinks that the church, it's there's too much idolatry, there's too much corruption, they've got too much money. Mm. So he thinks that religion should be much more simple. Yeah, that it, it, you know, that religion should be, or organised religion should be people living simple lives, yes. isn't it? Not owning, not owning property, the, property, and, and having yeah. sort of vast swathes of land, and basically. The church should be there to look after the people, not mm. the priests. Yeah. Which is a bit of a problem at this time. But why is this such a good episode? Because it's... It's it's just... I mean, obviously, all the performances are superb. Yeah. Peter, I think it's one of the best things I've ever seen Peter Jeffrey do. Yeah. I mean, let's say, Peter Jeffrey is, is good in everything he, he does. Yeah. But this is an absolute peak. Yeah, it's... it's peak Peter Jeffrey, if, if there is such a thing. It is. Yeah. Um, it's just because it's it's looking at belief, belief, and the dehumanisation of people because they have a different belief to yeah. you, and and the whole thing that because they say he's a heretic that he must have mm. the devil inside him. Well, well, I think it's quite good because you've got you've got Michael Ripper. Yes, because there's a sort of trainee sort of guard, guard isn't it the soldier yeah, David and he's saying don't listen to him because he's a heretic yeah and he'll infect you with the devil yeah and, and he's saying well what is a heretic and mm. what, what what do they they teach they teach mm. heresy yeah. and, and that's all he wants to he doesn't want to understand no, it he doesn't he just wants to warn against yeah. it doesn't he no. so i think that that's nice that sort of closed-minded thing about yes. you know he he is wrong mm-hmm. you know and i don't want to listen to what you've got to say yeah and yeah. i don't want to hear it there's a lot of that goes on still to this day. Yeah. But you get James Max Henry the Seventh. He wants to save his soul because mm-hmm. this is the second time that Peter Jeffrey's character 
has been brought up for heresy. So you can deny it once and you will be fined and you can go off. Mm. If you're caught again spouting heresy, you will be burned. Yeah. There is nothing that you can do to get out of it. But Henry VII wants him to renounce it so because he believes if he renounces it, his soul will be saved and he'll go yeah. to heaven. So it's the story of... There's two different stories. You've got the Henry VII and the prisoner, and you've got the prisoner and the guard. Mm. And that's, that's the thing. It, it doesn't make the mistake of saying one of these people is wrong. No. It looks they're, at, they're both right in their own way. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, Henry VII is doing what he believes is correct. Peter Jeffrey is doing what he believes is correct. David Ashton's just totally confused by it, or his character. Mm. And he has to, at the end, because they show... I'm not quite sure how they shoot it, but they show the burning, and obviously mm. they must have the fire bars in the yeah. sort of... Because it's, it, it does look very realistic. But he has to light the fire. We should say designer Barry Newbury. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they're quite simple sets, yeah. these. There's, there's none of them are really overcomplicated. They're not showy. No. no. They, they, they no. do the job, but you believe, yeah. you believe them, don't yeah. you? I mean, there are some episodes later on in the run where you do wonder where there's a bit of wall mm. and that's it. And you're like, right, OK, that's, that's yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's one of those episodes that everyone should see, isn't yes. it? I think, you know, if you if you like television... Yeah, it's superbly it, done. It's probably not well known, but no. it deserves to be, doesn't it? Should it should be better known. Yeah. And if you get the chance to see any of these episodes of this series that's the one to go that's for. the one to go for you don't need any prior knowledge of the series no. um if we, if we jump on to a fly in the ointment yes <laughs> now what's this one then this one is um about it's difficult to explain there's a lord who was supporting the uh, the um the Yorkist cause, oh, yeah. which was um, Edward the Fourth, yeah. who is Henry the Seventh. Would well if he'd been alive, it would have been his father-in-law, but yeah. he's, he's dead, obviously, because obviously he couldn't be king. And he doesn't think that um, Henry the Seventh should be on the throne. So basically, he decides to kill him, yeah, but not to actually physically do it himself. So they decide he and his nephew and um, an archdeacon decide to get a astrologer in it's they're in italy yeah and they decide to get an astrologer involved and the first one who's played by mr perkins Jeff- from rentigo jeffrey siegel um turns them down because yeah. he says he's a theoretical astrologer and not a practical astrologer and he passes them on to master john yeah who is played by john junkin and his teeth <laughs> explain about his teeth they're just they're very i mean they're obviously fake yeah. um it's yeah there's just they're they're but there, there, there's some proper sort of alchemy going on yeah, here, isn't there? They've got a little bubbling cauldron and he's putting stuff into it. and it's Little it's, explosions yeah, and things like yeah. that. And but that. this is very much the comedy episode, yeah. this one. We should say slight action by Havoc yeah. in that Terry Walsh well, falls down a couple of steps. Not even by they? Havoc. I don't think Havoc was going no, at this point. But, but Terry Walsh has to go down a very short staircase yeah. doesn't it well they want a proof that he can poison the king yeah so he poisons the servant of of the turkish there's a, there's a yeah. prince uh, a moorish prince and he they poison his servant and in, and terry walsh has to fall down three shallow steps yeah but because it's a little stunt you've got to have a stunt yeah 
So. But it's also something about some sort of magic ointment, isn't it? Yes. How does the magic ointment work? It's apparently because we should also say it's got Peter Bowles in. Yeah. And we did talk about this when we did Peter yeah. Bowles tribute with the most appalling French accent. Yeah. <laughs> That's a real sort of wandering around Clouseau type thing. Yeah. Um, it's basically the ointment is supposed to be spread around the door yeah. of a room and then the king would go through the door and then everybody else that went through the door would attack the king and kill him <laughs> or something. It, 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 this comes to naught though, doesn't no, it? Yeah. No, because A, it wouldn't work yeah. and it's complete nonsense and it's, yeah, it's just, they end up just sort of throwing it in, he throws it down the privy because it smells <laughs> so appalling. So. Excellent. But yeah, I, I, I have seen this episode a couple of times. You watched the whole series twice. at least twice, yeah. haven't you? That episode I've seen three times. And that that one, yes. Yeah. Did are we gonna, have we shown it to Warrior? Yes, or, we yeah. showed no. I think we showed that one. We showed the Sepperton. Oh no, we should show him this one as well yeah. then. I, well, I think he was watching it. Yeah. Whether he's still watching it or not is <laughs> another matter. But he did buy it, so But yes. Um what else have you got? You've got uh, Perkin Warbeck. Yes. So So uh, so Perkin Warbeck is another pretender yeah though i would say that we only know he's called perky Wolbeck from the sort of court reports yeah so there is the vaguest possibility that he was who he said he was mm. that he because he said he was richard duke of york who was the younger son yeah, so or the, the younger prince in the tower so he's in episodes like such as episodes 10 and 11 the, the man yes. who never was and the strange shapes of reality and, and the fledgling, and the fledgling episode yeah. 12 yeah yeah um, and he yeah, he basically claimed to be Richard Duke of York, the younger, the younger son of Edward the Fourth. And there's a whole thing about is he gonna f- try and fight him? And but he's he's not really up to it. Yeah, really. But he gets involved because there's in, in ep- there's an episode called Do the Sheep's In, which I think is episode nine. Yeah, and that's about the Cornish Rebellion because they're the the Cornish. Poor people in Cornwall are being taxed really heavily. Um, so they protest against it and somebody else takes advantage of it. And this is probably not the way it really happened, but this is the, the, the dramatised version of it. But yet again, it's it's the rich landowner or the landowner's son using the poor people to try and get power. Um, and it ultimately doesn't work out because they both end up getting hung, drawn and quartered. But it's got that, that episode's got John Woodvine in playing a, a, a giant. <laughs> he's meant to be a blacksmith, and he's a giant. He's not really a giant. I don't think John. What does he do? Stand on a box? No, he's, he's, I think it's just one of these things where somebody says he's seven foot tall, and they're like, right? Okay. I think he's probably something like six foot something. They do say, I told you, he was six foot one. You know, because it's so it's just. It's just it's one of these things where people sort of it snowballs yeah. and yeah i mean we should mention that you have talked about this series on on martin show vision on sound yes. so you did a whole episode about tudor i did tudor, uh, tudor things didn't yes. you yeah because yeah. you're a member of a tudor group on facebook i am that, yeah. several tudor groups yeah and mm. i wonder how well they know this series probably i don't know because i know um one of the authors that I've read, there's an author called Nathan Amin, who's mm. written about um, Henry VII and all the various pretenders. And he asked about it on Instagram a few months ago, anybody seen this series, what yeah. did you think? Because so. yeah. there is also a black and white yes. um, version, which you, which you watched. Yeah. 
Um, so, so how does that work? Well, that's that again. That's like a one-off play. Yeah. So this um, is a, a couple of years before. Yeah, it's nineteen sixty-nine. Yeah. yeah. And it's just telling. It's cool. It's the Tower of London, the Innocent. Yeah. And again, it's about the Earl of Warwick. Yeah. This time played by Robert Powell. All oh, right. And it's just because that is as, as much as I I do and I do really like Henry the Seventh. He's my favourite Tudor monarch. There is a bit of blot of, of a blot on his reputation because he did probably trap the Earl of Warwick into considering committing treason because. For uh, Prince Arthur to marry Catherine of Aragon, the Spanish king and queen wanted him dead. Yeah. So he couldn't just kill him. He didn't want him just to disappear because then you get a whole repeat of the prison princes in the tower thing. So he basically, they, they trap him into committing treason and then execute him. Yeah. I mean, we should say you're watching this off of a, a Dutch import. A Dutch DVD? import, yeah. Because yeah. when what? I looked into buying it, that was the cheapest version. Yeah. Um, it is a bit odd because, and I've seen the cover of, of the UK version, and that's got James Maxwell and uh, Norman West, who plays yeah. Elizabeth of York on the front. This one, for some reason, has got James Maxwell and the actress that plays Perkin Woolwick's wife, yeah. Perkin Woolwick's wife, in it on the front. I don't think they've got confused. Yeah, but it includes all thirteen episodes, yeah. English um, soundtrack, and yes. the black and white yeah. thing. And was there a? And there's a documentary from the seventies about Henry the Seventh. Yeah. Uh, the only thing is that the menuing is Dutch and you have to remember to turn the undertitling yes. off, don't you? Yes, which is the subtitles. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise you get Dutch subtitles. <laughs> but at least they're not burnt in, not the Miss Marvel. Yeah. Jumping ahead to episode 13, The King Without a Face. Yes. Uh, and by this point, you're starting to think, is this by like PJ Hammond? <laughs> and he's, no. But that takes us on to 1501. Yes. So what happens then, then? Uh, Prince Arthur died. Yeah. Uh, he, he gets married to Catherine of Aragon in 1501. And then he, they go off to live in um, Wales, mm-hmm. or on the edge of Wales, because he's Prince of Wales. And he died, basically. How in, did he die? Um, they, people aren't actually sure. They believe it was... They, they said it was a sweating sickness. Yeah. It might have been TB. Yeah. So it's very difficult to know after all this time. Basically... Um, Henry the Seventh is now left with one living son and two daughters. Yeah. So from this point onwards, he gets very overly protective of Henry the Eighth. He won't let him do anything strenuous. Um, to get to his room, you have to go through the king's room, and he, and it's really very well done because what he, he there's a scene when he and the queen find out that Arthur is dead, and he gives a really excellent performance. You know, showing emotion. You know, he cries and he's it's very emotional. Um, and then he's, he's Elizabeth of York, who was his queen, gets pregnant again because she wants to try and give him another son. Mm-hmm. And when the baby's born, it's born on her thirty seventh birthday, and it's a girl. And um, but then she dies. Yeah. And the baby died. So and then you get the aftermath of what happens after she dies and. You, d- you don't actually go into the last few because it's too much to go into the last few years of his life. Mm. But he was co- he was very often ill. He had sort of various um, throat and, and, and lung problems. And probably things weren't as well done as they were earlier in his reign. But it's difficult. And it's called The King Without a Face because he said, do the, do the people know what he looks like? Mm. Because he's... You have to think that in an age of 
Obviously, there's no newspapers. Yeah. There's he's no a, he's television. On a coin. He's on a coin. It's not but, exactly. Um, it's not a good likeness. It's not a great likeness because <laughs> it never is. You just wonder whether if he if people saw him if he didn't have his crown on yeah, and all these stuff know who he was. would they know who he yeah, was? Yeah. No. There's a lot of thing, uh, stuff as well because um, Elizabeth of York was the eldest daughter of Edward the Fourth. In some ways, she's more entitled to the throne than he is, yeah. which is why he marries her. But because she's a woman, she can't have the throne. There's, at yeah. this point, there's no way a woman can be the monarch. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just an interesting look at, at the last few years of, you know, his life. But, but you say a, a woman can't be a monarch. Yeah. There's quite a lot of women direct this, though. Yes. Um, yes. You, you've got Prudence Fitzgerald and Moira Armstrong yeah. doing most of the episodes mm-hmm. so they're doing four and three but anthea brown wilkinson mm-hmm. joan kemp welsh yes as well as a few uh familiar names to doctor who people like daryl blake and peter yeah. moffat who get mm-hmm. an episode each yes but how do you think the actual direction the studio direction works is it a you know a good production all round? yeah there are episodes there's one episode the white heart mm. which is episode six which the director is not enjoying it as much, yeah. I don't think. But the following episode, or the ones after that, the camera's moving all over the place yeah. and it's pulled up high. And So I think it very much depends on the script. If they're not yeah. finding the script inspiring, yeah. the direction can be a little workmanlike. But then scripting is given to an awful lot of people, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's, it's not just one or two people. Yeah. It's, you the, know. the most anybody gets is two episodes, yes. isn't it? So Hugh Whitemore writes... Two episodes, two, yeah. including your favourite, is yes. that right? Yeah. Yes, the serpent yeah. and the comforter. But again, again, some names that I don't really know. <laughs> An awful lot of Johns involved. John yes. Elliot, John Gould, John Peacock. Rosemary Ann Sisson writes the, the, the first, first episode, though. First two episodes. All oh, right, it's the first two. Yeah, and she also writes for for the Six Wives of Henry VIII as okay. well. Okay, yeah. So there is a bit of. Yeah. There is a bit of crossover, and you yeah. get Julian Mitchell go later go on to write quite a lot of mosses. Okay. So, so yeah, some some good people involved. Yes, I mean I didn't really know what to expect when when we got this. Mm-hmm. Was it? I guess it was yours. You you picked it up on the off chance. I think did you? I, I we saw didn't, it. Again, we yeah. didn't know about it, no. did we? Oh, and I just thought, oh, that looks interesting, and I'll, I'll, and it wasn't the way I thought it was going to be, mm. because before I started watching this, I had no perceived idea of yeah. what Henry the Seventh was going to be like. Yeah, and I can probably say this is what made me interested in Henry the Seventh and I've read I, a lot more about it. I find this these are a much easier watch than the earlier two series yes. simply because of the running time. Yeah. Yes, they're 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 good work the other the other mm-hmm. series. But they're films. Yes. They're ninety minute films, aren't mm-hmm. they? These these are T V plays. Yes. Fifty minute episodic plays. Yeah. They're much easier to watch. Yeah. Because I watched a bit, a little bit, because the, the BBC Four are currently repeating the Six Wives of Henry VIII, yeah. and I watched a bit of Catherine of Aragon, and I, it got to half past ten, and I'm like, oh, they're not even really, they just got to the start of where yeah. Henry's saying that he doesn't think he's legally married to her. These have got a bit of bit of a lick on, haven't they? Yes. they they've got some pace to. Well, them, they have to because yeah. they've only got fifty minutes yeah. to do it. So, and, and I think that's a great advantage the series have got over the others. Mm. So, yeah I, yeah, I really actually enjoyed these a lot more than I thought I would. I, I, I was sort of half watching the first couple um, when you had them on. But slowly I was going, oh, actually, yes, this is really working for me. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, I agree that they are 
They are underrated. It is, it is underrated. It should be better known yeah. because if you like that kind of drama, if you like Six Wives of Henry the Eighth, and mm. if you like Elizabeth R. This, this is, is it more sort of distilled, isn't it? it? Is. The, 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 it is. the, the, there's not all the sort of flapping about and no. longers as, as it, you know, that, that the others can suffer from. So, and yeah. I would say as well, in episode 13, The King Without a Face, because you get the marriage between Arthur and Catherine of Aragon, and they've actually cast the actors as age appropriate. Yeah, because this is one of your things with some of yeah. these Tudor dramas, that they never get anyone that's the right age, no. do they? Well, I was, wa- I said again, watching the Catherine of Aragon episode, there's a bit of the start, and it's got John Woodknight in it as Henry Seventh, and he takes Arthur to meet Catherine of Aragon. And they've got they've got a young actor playing Arthur who looks about fifteen, mm. and then you've got Annette Crosby who's about twice the age. <laughs> and you, um, with the best will in the world, you cannot get away with it. Yeah. It really stands out. If they'd made the actor playing Arthur a bit older, it wouldn't have noticed as much. But in this, you get teenagers playing those parts, yeah. so it's it's more accurate. It's more accurate. Yeah. Because um, it always annoys me and Elizabeth R, and I've probably said this before, that Vivian Pickles, who plays Mary, Queen of Scots, is obviously older than Glenda Jackson. Yeah. And Elizabeth I was older than Mary, Queen of Scots. And it's just a stupid little thing, but yeah. it niggles me. But all in all, it's your recommended show. It is. Um, for this month or this episode or whatever. Yes. Do you have to source it from the Dutch copy? or No, there is an English in, uh, uh, to entertain version yeah. out. But you just got it because it was cheaper. That was the cheapest one yeah. at the time. I believe some of it, or possibly all of it, is also on YouTube. Yeah. But obviously I would always say, get the DVD because yeah. it's better quality. But but just remember to turn the under-titling yes, off. turn the under-titling off. I wish you'd be wondering what the yeah. hell was going on. Okay, thank you then. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Episode 65 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Frobridge, Martin Holmes, Paul Chandler and Muffley on tour. On the musical side you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for The Shadow of the Tower, The Serpent and the Comforter was by Hugh Whitemore. And the producer was Jordan Lawrence.
Many thanks to Paul and Muffley for that. Yes, thank you, boys. They can be heard on Paul's show, the Shy Life podcast, of they course. Can. Yes. And many thanks to Martin for that. Yes, thank you, Martin. Again, not a show I'm that familiar with. I don't know about you. Yeah, I think I may have seen one or two episodes, but I've seen so many mm. American police things it gets confusing after all. <laughs> but always good to hear about things we're not that familiar yes. with. Yes. But here's something that we are a little more familiar with, mm -hmm. as Paul and a new voice in the form of Muffley on Tour come here and go there. <laughs>